Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly. I'm Sean Donnan, the FT's world news editor. On the show this week, the essential relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. The two men come from very different backgrounds. They're not ideological soulmates. But as ever, our two nations do share considerable uh, strategic interests and common values. And that's what's underpinning uh, it at the moment. Stalemate in Libya continues. We ask, what's next for the Arab Spring? We're at a moment when the Europeans and the Americans and indeed international institutions want to consolidate some gains, thinking principally here about Tunisia, Egypt, and the packages of financial and technical support which are emerging and worries about how that's going to settle down. Spain teeters on the edge of the expanding Eurozone debt crisis. A pretty savage turnaround for the government has left people asking whether or not it's time to call an early election to allow the whole process of austerity or reforms, if you like, to be pushed forward with greater vigor. And we look to the future for Japan's energy policy post-Fukushima. Opinion polls and anecdotal evidence suggest that enthusiasm for nuclear power has declined markedly since the crisis. But first to Obama and his trip to the UK. Joining me in the studio is the FT's UK news editor, Sarah Neville, and on the line from Brussels, Bureau Chief Peter Spiegel. Sarah, can I come to you first? Why don't you explain for us exactly what this special relationship is, or as it became known this week, the essential relationship? Well, I think it has meant different things in different eras. It can be the kind of ideological communion shared by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, or it can be underpinned by the shared endeavour of going to war, as it was with Churchill and Roosevelt, Blair and Bush. But I think this particular iteration of it, Cameron and Obama, is rather more grown-up and less starry-eyed than it has sometimes been in the past. The two men come from very different backgrounds. They're not ideological soulmates. But, as ever, our two nations do share considerable uh, strategic interests and common values. And that's what's underpinning uh, it at the moment. You say it's a grown-up relationship, but it's also been an amazingly choreographed trip this week. We've seen a barbecue, we've seen a visit to Buckingham Palace, a state dinner, some amazing photo calls. What has there been beyond that? Well, I think each side knew exactly what they wanted from this, which was they each wanted a bit of stardust from the other, but for hard-headed domestic reasons. Obama and his wife Michelle have benefited from photo calls with the royal family, particularly uh, the Countess of Cambridge, the new celebrity on the royal circuit. And Cameron, in turn, has benefited from photo calls alongside the leader of the free world, which can only make him look more statesmanlike at a time when Britain is actually going through an extremely difficult period with this huge debt reduction and all the potential social implications of that. 
We have seen one point of friction or a slight point of friction this week, and that is the relationship on Libya and the slightly different perceptions of what the U.S. and U.K. role need to be in the intervention in Libya. What is the state of the relationship when it comes to that intervention? Nothing much changed, actually, on that during the two days that Obama spent in the UK. At the joint press conference Cameron and Obama had, there were lots of warm words from the president about the importance of keeping up the pressure on Gaddafi. But he was equally absolutely clear that the US has no intention of becoming more deeply militarily involved there, which is what the UK had hoped it would do. And the French as well. Peter, what is the view in Brussels, I guess the view on the continent, when it comes to the U.S. intervention or the U.S.'s role in that intervention in Libya? Are the Europeans happy? Well, no. I mean, I think the French in particular have even been more adamant than the British on their disappointment that the U.S. has withdrawn so quickly, particularly in their fighter planes from the actual bombing activity in Tripoli. Frankly, we're rather angry that basically a, a, a capabilities gap that happened once the turnover went from a U.S. leadership to a NATO leadership. And they have been, frankly, pretty open about the fact that they feel the United States has let them down in a certain respect. So the French are leading this charge, and and the Brits have been more quiet in this regard, but there is quite a bit of disappointment that the U.S. has taken this backseat. And it sort of reflects the tension that I think Sarah was talking about between the U.S. and Europe that has emerged in the Obama administration. Remember back two, three years ago where Obama came to Berlin and hundreds of thousands of people were celebrating his candidacy for president. Nicolas Sarkozy basically endorsed him at the Elysee while he was still a candidate for president. I mean, such a huge amount of expectations of this administration. But frankly, Washington and the White House in particular has not really cared too much about its European relationships. I mean, they much more have been wanting to focus on Asia in particular, but also that the problems in the Middle East extracted themselves from Iraq, extracting themselves from Afghanistan, dealing with the problem of Pakistan. Europe has really been a secondary importance to the White House. And, and frankly, this has is, this is disappointed the State Department. They have wanted to re-engage with Europe on any number of issues, and the Europeans have been rather annoyed by this. They feel that they are being ignored by this White House, and, and they have some justification there because the White House does not see Europe as one of its top foreign policy priorities. We had some amazing comments this week from Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, shortly after Christine Lagarde announced her candidacy for the IMF managing director's role. Geithner said he thought she was a credible candidate, as was Agustin Carstens, the Mexican central bank governor, as stopping short of endorsing the European candidate to take over at the IMF. Do you think that reflects this administration's attitudes towards Europe, or is that part of a bigger game? No, I think it is exactly on point there. There's always been this tension within the U.S. Is it an Atlantic nation or is it a Pacific nation? And Obama, in his foreign policy rhetoric, has very much wanted to shift the U.S. towards a Pacific positioning. The Obama administration views Asia as the dynamic, growing area and, frankly, has taken Europe a bit for granted. Uh, They even openly say that we should not have to tend to our friends. We need to take care of our Pacific needs much more closely because that is where the future is. And that is a dynamism that has caused frustration not only in Europe, but within some of the transatlanticists in Washington who really see on issues from, from Iraq, Afghanistan to Libya and elsewhere that Europe is essential. Uh, going even beyond national security issues, on issues like trade in the Doha round, I mean, elsewhere in the world, there is growing sense in Europe that there has to be a Western bloc 
to deal with the growing powers of the BRICS. And this IMF fight here over who's going to be the, the leader there goes to show that that's the direction we're heading in. We're going into a direction where the developing world is trying to set up its own pillar as, as a power in global affairs. And the Europeans very much want to, to latch on to the Americans and keep them in their camp as a force of global power to influence those organizations. Peter, thank you very much for joining us from Brussels. And Sarah, thanks for joining us in the studio. We're going to move on to our second topic for today, Spain. We've had national elections last weekend where we've seen a vote against the government. We've also seen some amazing scenes from town squares, city squares around the country where young people have occupied uh, the squares in almost an Arab Spring-like way. I've got Victor Mallet on the line. He is the FT Bureau Chief in Madrid, and Victor was in one of these squares in Madrid last night. Victor, just tell us a little bit about the scene. I wouldn't quite call it an Arab Spring because the aims of the people there are very varied. It's a bit like uh, Camden Market or a sort of giant political fair, if you like. There are a dozen or more different groups. They've all sort of camped out in the middle of the Puerta del Sol, which is really the, the central square of Madrid. Some of them are against the main political parties. Some of them want to nationalize the banks. Some of them are in favor of animal rights. Some of them are feminists. So you have a, a whole sort of range of issues. I think the one thing that brings people together is what they call the sense of indignity resulting from economic failure and, above all, from very high youth unemployment. Most of these people are students or they're in their 20s and they haven't got jobs. And the other issue that unites them is a general distrust of the two main political parties, the Socialist Party and the right-wing Popular Party. And they feel that this bipartisan system in which the two parties dominate is not satisfactory. But it has to be said, they don't have a very clear idea of what they want to do instead or what they feel should replace it. So there's no unifying theme like there was in, in the Middle East. So what does this mean for the government, for the socialist government, which is trying to push through these very hard cuts, trying to rein in the deficit and is under a lot of pressure to avoid a bailout? In a sense, I think these young people would previously, or people of that generation, would previously have been broadly allied to the left. They, they would have supported Zapatero's withdrawal of, of troops from Iraq as soon as he first took power in 2004. In a sense, he's lost those young Spaniards because of the crisis and because of the need to impose austerity measures and because of the failure to create employment for the young. In a sense, those people were already lost before the election and the immediate problem for the socialist government and for Jose Luis Rodriguez Zapatero is the severe loss in the regional and local elections last Sunday, which really was, I think, historically the worst defeat they've had in local elections since the death of Franco and the biggest win for the popular party that they've had in the same period. So um, a pretty savage turnaround for the government has left people asking whether or not it's time to call an early election to allow the whole process of austerity or reforms, if you like, to be pushed forward with greater vigor. But that is still in debate at the moment, pretty vigorous political debate on both sides of the political divide. Victor, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to our next topic for today, which is the Arab Spring. I've got David Gardner, who is our international affairs editor, and Abir Alam, who is our Riyadh correspondent in the studio here curious, David, as to where you think we are in the Arab Spring right now. We're at a moment when the Europeans and the Americans and indeed international institutions want to consolidate some gains, thinking principally here about 
Tunisia, Egypt, and the packages of financial and technical support which are emerging, and worries about how that's going to settle down. So that's one series of concerns. Then you have Libya, Yemen, and Syria. Libya, I think the trend, even though it often looks like stalemate, is still inexorably towards the departure and thereby defeat of Gaddafi. In Yemen, well, you've seen quite serious fighting in the capital Sana'a between the government and its main tribal opponents and rivals. Journalists who saw Ali Abdullah Saleh yesterday came away with the impression that this man has zero intention of leaving either power or the country, not leaving much in the way of levers or tools for the Gulf and Western diplomats who've been trying to ease him out in a managed transition. And then, of course, there's Syria. My personal view of Syria is that, yes, the Assads can hold on to power in the short term, probably. But the nature of that regime has now changed irrevocably. The point is, it is now going to be isolated abroad and has lost legitimacy at home. There are two further factors to bear in mind here. One is, in the past, Syria has actually been extraordinarily lucky. There's always been a windfall whether it was Soviet money, Arab money, the sudden discovery of oil, there don't appear to be any windfalls coming down the road. That's number one. They are heading for bankruptcy. The other is this, that for all their power and their willingness to shoot down their own citizens and use tanks and snipers against them, it still looks as though they're stepping on a balloon full of water. Whenever they're involved heavily in two or three places, there are another dozen where people are on the street demanding the downfall of the regime. So if you take a longer-term view, it's, that is going to be extremely messy and looks like being very bloody, but it still doesn't look good for the assets. They've taken the wrong turn. Abir, how does this all look from Saudi? I mean, I always wonder what the mood is like among ordinary Saudis as they see all of this unfolding around them. Since the Tunisian revolution started, young Saudis are being glued to their television and their uh, computer screen, just following whatever is happening in Tunisia. But when the Egyptian revolution broke out, they felt that this is going to change the entire region, and including Saudi Arabia. So they've been supporting Egyptian activists, I would say, on, on Twitter, on TV, or everywhere. They just try to spread the news as much as they can. And, and they started immediately comparing the Egyptian revolution to what happened in 1952 in Egypt, the military coup. They said that at that time, Saudi Arabia was forced to make some changes and some reforms, like introducing women's education or ending slavery. And they think this is because of the Egyptian revolution at that time. So they thought this will also have a good impact on them. Are we seeing any signs of reform in Saudi? I think the Saudis try to make sure that they don't seem like they are responding to pressure or responding to the original pressure. They wanted to make a point that we are different and we don't have a problem. And even the we, we heard lots of uh, reports about cabinet reshuffle when the kings come back or elected parliament. 
And sometimes I feel the Saudi officials just went out of their way to make sure that nothing really changes because they don't need to change because they are more stable and they don't have the same problems that facing other Arab countries. But of course, they give a lot of financial support for their people. If we just go back to the situation in Yemen, for weeks we had the, the Saudis and other Gulf states trying to mediate an, an end to Ali Abdullah Saleh's rule and uh, with the opposition. That all seems to have fallen apart in recent days. From the Saudi perspective, how does a brewing civil war in Yemen look and how will they view the events this week? This is disastrous for Saudi Arabia. Yemen has been a problem for Saudi Arabia for quite some time now, for for years, since uh, Al-Qaeda militants, under pressure from the interior ministry in Saudi Arabia, they just fled to Yemen and regrouped there. And most of Al-Qaeda on the Arabian Peninsula, which is seen as one of the most active sort of subsidiaries of Al-Qaeda. Yes. For Saudi Arabia, they don't care about Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan anymore, or even Osama bin Laden. What they care about is their young people going to Yemen and training and coming back and launch attacks, which happened once, actually. Somebody tried to kill the deputy interior minister, Prince Mohammed bin Naif. He's a counterterrorism chief. And most of the troubles come from Yemen and even drugs, illegal immigrants. So for them to have a country that big on their borders, just on the verge of explosion, this is really a disaster for Saudi Arabia. And I think they will just try to do their best to calm the situation down. But I don't think there is much they can do at this point. Abir, thank you very much. David, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. And that brings us to our final topic for today, and that is Japan. A few months after Japan's northeast was devastated by an earthquake and tsunami, the country is now looking to the next phase of reconstruction. FT Bureau Chief Muir Dickey spoke with Serena Tarling earlier today about the key challenges facing the country. I'm spending the night in Sendai, the capital of Miyagi Prefecture, and in some ways it's very encouraging. The last time I was here, there was definitely a very gloomy mood in the streets. The hotel I was staying at then uh, didn't have any hot water. Shops were pretty empty. Today, traveling around things in the parts of the city that weren't directly affected by the tsunami look very normal. And, and life, as the mayor was telling us, life is pretty much returned to normal for those people who haven't suffered directly. And yet, as you go towards the coast, you quickly come across that devastation, which was a feature of the tsunami's effect on communities right next to the water. And there's lots of wreckage and debris piled up while government and local authorities try to figure out what to do with it. Anybody who's involved in industries such as fishing or um, we were talking earlier to oyster cultivators, you know, they're facing an extremely difficult situation and one that won't be resolved anytime soon. How do you think the people of Japan view the way Naoto Kan has handled the crisis? Mr. Khan's popularity did bounce a bit from a pretty low pre-disaster level, but I think it's fair to say he hasn't benefited from the disaster in terms of popularity in the way that many people thought he might. The government has been struggling on many levels, and, and often because it's been an extraordinary range of very immediate challenges that it's faced since March 11th. But I think the government hasn't managed to convince a lot of people in Japan that it's in control of the situation. Which sectors have been worst hit? Have some fared better than expected? Well, autos and semiconductors have been a couple of the sectors that have suffered the most obvious damage. We have a situation where Toyota and other major car makers aren't going to be getting back to normal production for some months yet. 
Having said that, we are hearing increasingly that supply chains are being restored somewhat faster than initially feared. And so there is a growing optimism, at least among officials and some companies, that before the end of this year, supply chains will have been restored. And even where there are factories that have been very badly damaged by the tsunami in particular, that they'll be able to work around that and that uh, major companies will be back on track. And what does the future energy policy for Japan look like now? Has popular attitude towards nuclear power changed? It's interesting. Certainly opinion polls and anecdotal evidence suggest that enthusiasm for nuclear power has declined markedly since the crisis at the Fukushima Daiichi plant began. Certainly what people here call the myth of safety, the long-standing power sector and government assurances that nuclear power was safe despite the, Japan's uh, seismic vulnerability. Uh, you know, that myth is, has been fairly comprehensively exploded. And yet there's still a pretty broad uh, acceptance that nuclear power has to be part of Japan's energy mix. You know, the anti-nuclear campaigners haven't been able to persuade everybody that Japan, which is extremely reliant on imported fossil fuels, um, can afford to go non-nuclear. In fact, you could say that the immediate policy effect has been less in Japan in terms of energy policy than it has been, for example, in Germany. But Naoto Kan, the prime minister, has declared that there has to be a comprehensive rethink of energy policy, that nuclear power will continue to be a pillar of the energy mix, but that Japan has to do more to promote renewable energy and energy consumption and that they should be kind of prioritized. That was Muir Dickey speaking with Serena Tarling. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Sarah Neville, David Gardner, and Abir Alam, who joined me here in the studio, Peter Spiegel in Brussels, Victor Mallet in Madrid, and, of course, Muir Dickey in Tokyo. World Weekly is produced by L.J. Filatrani. I'm Sean Donnan. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.